From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Well, welcome to a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Father Wade is gallivanting across the countryside and is unavailable to join us today. So we recorded this brand new program for you so it could run in his stead. He'll be back again live with us uh, tomorrow. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program and our host on this virtual edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday is the one and only Father Wade Menezes. Where, where are you? I'm in California, oh. but not now, literally, but will be when this airs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you going to be milking cows? <laughs> no, no, but I'll, I'll be... Are you going to be in the valley? I will be in the valley, and I will be seeing the new Christ Cathedral for the Diocese of Orange, mm. uh, which is the former so-called Crystal Cathedral right. from the Robert Schuller Foundation. Right. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. They've redone the inside. Oh, you haven't been there? I haven't. Since, yeah. And it's it's open now. They've redone the inside for Catholic worship, and so I'm looking forward I to that. I was there about a week before the dedication. Oh, yes, beautiful. So they had not opened it yet. Boy, it was... A long time coming, I know. Did, yeah. you, did you hear about all the, the, the difficulties oh, that they yeah. had here with the, yeah. the birds eating the grout and everything else? It was <laughs> a struggle. <laughs> and and how, the, how the codes have changed yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in the number of years since it was built, like for earthquake codes and whatnot. So yeah. I'm looking forward to it, and I will be there with uh, my deacon brother, my natural blood brother, Deacon yep. Lane Menezes. So oh, we're looking forward to it. So uh, I usually ask questions that have been sent in by our callers or put our callers in contact with you to ask you their questions. But I'm going to ask you a question to start this edition of Open Line Tuesday. What is, Father Wade, the source and summit of the Christian life? The Eucharist. Oh! Reception of and celebration thereof. And with all this talk about Eucharistic communion and who can receive and who shouldn't receive, and the church's teaching is there, it's always been there, but I'm glad the document's coming out in November from our USCCB, because whenever the church is pressured on a certain doctrine, she reissues a document as a reiteration document. So I'm looking forward to it. I hope it comes out as a strong one and uh, to reiterate the church's teaching. Look, our goal is to help people receive a holy communion not a sacrilegious communion, right? And so that, that's, that's the goal of reception of the Eucharist. Um, so when, when I hear this talk of weaponizing the Eucharist or so forth, uh, please, I'm actually concerned for the person's soul, right? I want them to receive precisely, capital P, precisely a holy communion and not a sacrilegious communion to their greater condemnation. St. Paul's clear about that, let alone the church's teachings, you know. For their own edification. And for their own edification and, and salvation. Absolutely, absolutely. So I want to talk about Eucharistic adoration and, and a little bit about Eucharistic miracles for this springboard. Do you know what Eucharistic adoration is? And do you know why the Catholic Church greatly promotes this practice? As taught by the Second Vatican Council, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life, to quote Lumen Gentium 11, as Jack just did. In the celebration of the Eucharist, we believe that when the priest says the word Words of consecration at Mass, the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ, a miraculous change the Church calls transubstantiation, meaning literally a change of substance. As a result, the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity is really, truly, and substantially present. 
under either Eucharistic species, whether the consecrated bread or the consecrated wine. And while we can both adore and receive our Lord in Holy Communion at Mass, we can also adore him outside of Mass in his true and abiding real presence in what's referred to as Eucharistic adoration. With Eucharistic adoration, the Eucharist is exposed in a monstrance, a vessel made of precious metal that holds a large consecrated host behind glass so that it may be gazed upon by adorers of this most blessed sacrament. This is done at set times during the week established by the pastor of a parish and includes adorers who sign up for a committed hour. The Eucharistic, uh, but Eucharistic adoration may also include perpetual adoration that is ongoing in a chapel constructed just for that purpose, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We can also adore our Lord in his sacramental presence by simply praying before a tabernacle wherein the Blessed Sacrament is reserved. The tabernacle was originally intended for the reservation of the Eucharist in a church or chapel so that it could be brought to those absent from Mass, for example, the sick and those advanced in age. But as faith in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist deepened, the church became conscious of the importance and meaning of silent adoration of our Lord truly present under the Eucharistic species. The benefit of this is that one can partake of Eucharistic adoration even if the Blessed Sacrament is not exposed in a monstrance, again, praying before a tabernacle. And so that's important to know what and why Eucharistic adoration is. And also now a little bit about Eucharistic miracles, huh? Again, the Church teaches the Catholic, that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. This is because the other sacraments, and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the Apostolate, are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. For in the Blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the Church, namely Christ himself. That's right. As Catholics, we believe that Jesus Christ is truly, really, and substantially present in the Most Holy Eucharist from the words of consecration onwards. The elements of bread and wine are no longer bread and wine, but rather through the miracle of transubstantiation are changed in their very substance into the very substance of our Lord's body and blood. And while the accidents or characteristics of bread and wine remain after the words of consecration, our faith tells us that our Lord is truly present in the Eucharist. Now, over the centuries, numerous Eucharistic miracles have taken place in which the reserved Eucharistic host has taken on the physicality and even visual appearance of human flesh and blood. Italy, Poland, Germany, France, Belgium, Belgium, Austria, Portugal, and the Netherlands, Spain, and Switzerland are just some of the countries where Eucharistic miracles have taken place in which the Church has deemed them worthy of belief. The Eucharistic miracles of Lanciano, Italy in 750, and that of Santarem in or Santarem in Portugal in 1247, are just two of the many examples where critical studies and analyses have played a role in validating the miraculous occurrence when a consecrated Wheaton host has turned into human flesh and blood. In some cases, scientific and medical experts, secular men or women, have determined the human flesh to be of human heart tissue, bringing to mind our Lord's own sacred heart as part of his sacred humanity as the God-man. While belief in these miracles, these Eucharistic miracles, is not required of the faithful, such supernatural occurrences can aid one in an increase of faith in the Eucharistic doctrine. In fact, many of these miracles took place precisely at a moment when someone doubted our Lord's real presence in the Eucharist. So what a gift we have, huh, in this source and summit of the Christian life. 
you know, it's uh, it's a t- it's obviously it's a t- it's timely based on everything that's that's going on. But I think it's it's uh, it might be important to point out what we can expect from this document and what we hadn't ought to expect. And really, this is m- merely going to be a reinforcement. That's right of this of the millennia old teaching of the church on the nature of the Eucharist. Yeah, the abs- that's absolutely right. Like I said, w- when the church has a doctrine in place, for example on the Eucharist, who can receive, who cannot receive, uh, and, and that doctrine is challenged. She simply is forced, and I put that word in quotes, she's forced to reiterate her teaching. So a modern document in modern times, in this case, November of 2021, hopefully, is when it's supposed to come out, is a good thing. I have no problem with the document coming out, but for those who are expecting it's going to say something new, like in certain cases, this politician or that politician or a politician can receive, not if they're obstinate in their sin. You know, uh, who cannot receive the Eucharist is he or she who is in a state of mortal sin. That's the only thing that, that prevents one from receiving the Eucharist in Holy Communion. And if they receive it in a state of mortal sin, it's a sacrilegious communion. What makes a mortal sin? Grave matter, fullness of knowledge, and done with deliberate consent of your will. Grave matter. It seriously contravenes God's moral law. And seriously so. The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Number two, fullness of knowledge. You have fullness of knowledge in your intellect that this action does contravene God's moral law, and seriously so. And element number three for the mortal sin, you do it with deliberate consent of your will anyway. Grave matter, fullness of knowledge, and done with deliberate consent of your will. So for those who know the church's teaching, and I'll use abortion as one example because it's the one that's in the media so much, on those who can and cannot receive Holy Communion— for those who, re- who know the Church's teaching and yet remain obstinate, they remain ob- obdurate, is another word, in their view, right, uh, that, you could, that they can still receive. They're simply wrong, and they're receiving a sacrilegious communion instead of a holy communion. And then, you know, all that the Church teaches about conscience, oh, but they're following their conscience. No, no, the Church teaches about conscience. Yes, let them follow their conscience provided they have a rightly informed conscience. (laughs) So one's personal conscience is not the final arbiter of a personal decision. It's one's rightly informed conscience that is to be the final arbiter of an informed decision. Okay, And so we need to know what the Church teaches in her scripture tradition of the magisterium to make a moral judgment on this. Again, this is a very special mailbag edition. Just getting started in this uh, mailbag edition. We will uh, have some callers uh, after the break that have held on from a previous show. And we've got some listener comment line calls that we'll sprinkle in as we go along. So stay tuned. A brand new show. Lots of great questions and great content. You're going to want to stick around to EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, EWTN Radio can be heard on many smart speaker systems that are out there now. Just give it a try. Say, Alexa, play EWTN Radio and see what you get. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, and that is worth absolutely nothing today because this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. And on the day we recorded this program, we had some folks that were uh, sitting around on hold waiting to talk to Father Wade, so we're going to take those calls right now. First, we'll go to Chris, who is in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and he is listening on the EWTN app. Chris, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Wade. Good afternoon, uh, Jack. Father Wade, I'm being blessed by your six-part mission this uh, week on EWTN. Oh, well, thank you so much. We, we really appreciate that, Art. Thank you so much. Your homilies are excellent in themselves. I just have a, a quick comment. Uh, the woman who called up earlier regarding the term administrator, I wanted to mention that up here in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, the term that is frequently used up here is parochial administrator. And it's, the term is used when a priest is appointed to a parish with the expectation that within one year he will be made pastor. So he's temporarily promoted to the a position of parochial administrator. If all goes well within that year, he's then promoted to pastor of the parish. So that administrator is used in that context frequently up here in the Philadelphia area. Well, great, and it's probably one of the canonical contexts that are enunciated in the Code of Canon Law from 1983. I'm sure there's others that the term is used as well, like 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 sending the parochial administrator there, knowing that that particular individual will not be the pastor, but he's there simply to fill in before the 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 proper one is named by the bishop and whenever that happens. So I, I have no doubt, I mean, common sense tells me, and I'm no canon lawyer, but common sense tells me that the one phrase per, uh, parochial administrator, and, and colloquially we just say parish administrator, but you're right, it's parochial administrator, has several senses to it, and, and the one you just enunciated so well, uh, Art, is is definitely one of those. Uh, so, th- or, or Chris, excuse me. So thank you so much uh, for that. Did you have another question, Chris? Uh, no, that's all. Thank you very much, Father Wade and Jack. Oh, Thank- thanks for the question. Uh, thanks for the clarification, Chris. We appreciate it. Um, now we'll head to Art, who is in Covington, Kentucky. He is listening on WNOP 740 AM. Art, you're on with Father Wade. Yes, Father Wade. Thank you for uh, being there to uh, answer my question. It's not a life or death question, but it's a, it's just about Judas. Uh, I was just wondering, uh, of course, Judas, um, the Pharisees came to Judas and uh, they asked him to sort of betray Christ and then uh, gave him 30 pieces of silver and then he thought about it again and then hung himself. And I was just wondering what the consequences would have been in the way the church reads the Bible is is that if Christ, uh, say three or four weeks before the Pharisees come to came to uh, Judas and said, "Hey, look, I'm going to die on a cross to save the world," and uh, the Pharisees are going to come to you and ask you to betray me, uh, go along with it. That's the way things are supposed to happen. Okay. Well, the way you describe that scenario is one option. It would have taken away the reality of faith that Judas might have had. If Christ tells him everything, there will be no faith. There'll be no need for faith. 
Um, you're asking a question about Judas, which is a conundrum for all of humanity, including the writings of the church fathers of the first seven or eight centuries. It, it, Judas's betrayal has to do with the doctrine of free will, with the doctrine of faith being both a gift of God and a human act on the part of the person responding to all that God has revealed. Um, if, if Christ would have told everything to Judas in advance, there'd be no need for faith. Uh, Judas wouldn't have rejected Christ, possibly, but neither would Judas have, have embraced truly who Christ is, uh, necessarily so, because Christ would have told him how everything's going to turn out. So where would faith be in such a scenario? Where would free will be in such a scenario? Where would love and trust uh, be in such a scenario? Uh, Judas, thank God, was the minority. Huh? Uh, the other 11 stayed faithful. And Judas was able to be replaced somewhat soon uh, after the resurrection with Matthias, or after, after the death and resurrection of our Lord be, with St. Matthias. So um, it remains a mystery. You know, we know that our Lord says in regards to his betrayer, quote, it would be better if he would have never have been born. Huh? Uh, so so it, it remains a conundrum, but, but we know that it has to do with the doctrine of free will, and it has to do with the doctrine of faith that uh, Judas faltered. Now, we know that he showed some remorse by his uh, returning the, the money and throwing it uh, back to the, the Pharisees. The problem is he despaired. We never want to despair of God's mercy, nor do we want to presume on God's mercy, right? Uh, there's a great quote by St. Jean-Marie Vigny, the patron saint of parish priests, and I think since the year for priests, he's now the patron saint of all priests, uh, parish priests and non-parish priests, like religious order priests in, in an active apostolate of, of preaching or whatever, um, or teachers or whatever. He's the patron saint of priests, and he says, uh, the man of true sanctity, the man of true holiness, is the one who is just as consciously aware of the dark side of himself as he is for his need for the grace and mercy of God. He holds both in a balance, end quote. Now, why is that important, that quote? I'll tell you why. Because if all we do is focus on the dark side of ourselves, that can lead to the sin of despair. And that's what Judas experienced. It led him to suicide, okay? Um, but if all we do is focus on the love and grace and mercy of God, all the while still sinning and never really trying to improve ourselves and detach from the sinful actions, then that can lead to the opposite extreme, which is presuming on God's mercy. So we neither want to despair of God's mercy, nor do we want to presume on God's mercy, right? So again, St. Jean-Marie Vianney, the great French priest, he says, the man of true sanctity, the man of true holiness, is the one who is just as consciously aware of the dark side of himself as he is for his need for the grace and mercy of God. He holds both of those in a balance, a balanced spirituality, a balanced Catholic spirituality, a, a balanced view of God and his mercy and his helping of the soul with grace. Not that, not that everyone who commits suicide despaired, okay? I'm just giving you St. John Marie Vianney's quote. The, the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, universally promulgated in 1992, and the English came out in 1994, is very, very clear that we don't know the full parameters of what the person was experiencing who committed suicide. This is why the person who committed suicide can still have a full mass of Christian burial. They can still be buried in a Catholic cemetery, etc., etc. Okay? All I'm telling you is, is, is an example, because your question has to do with Judas, 
and Judas precisely committed suicide. So we don't want to despair of God's mercy like Judas did, but we don't want to presume on God's mercy either. So great question about Judas. Faith and free will make us like God are the two elements that make us like God. Faith and free will are not offered to mice. Faith and free will are not offered to dogs. Faith and free will and the ability to choose the true, the good, and the beautiful are not offered to uh, cats. Is my friend Nadine listening, Jack? I don't know if she is or not, but, but she loves her cats. But uh, the gifts of faith and free will and the ability to, cho- to choose the good, the true, and the beautiful are not offered to uh, a beautiful waterfall. They are not offered to a tree. They are not offered to a, a, a gorgeous bouquet of flowers. They are offered only to the human person because the human person alone is made in God's image and likeness, to quote Genesis 1, 26 through 27. So this is what sets us apart from all other forms of this beautiful, corporeal, created world. Faith and free will and the ability to choose rightly and freely, the good, the true, and the beautiful in concrete daily actions, as number 1803 of the Catechism teaches us, is crucial in working out your salvation, Philippians 2.12, is crucial in working out your salvation. Judas, by all appearances, didn't necessarily do that. He was led to despair. Um, But praise God, the Church's teaching is that there is hope for salvation for those who commit suicide, the Universal Catechism. We pray for their salvation, in fact. Again, this is a mailbag edition of Open Line Tuesday, but we did have a couple callers that were on hold from a previous program. And the last of those is Gene in Key Largo, Florida, listening to EWTN Radio today. Gene, you are on with Father Wade. Hi. Good afternoon. Hi, Gene. Hi. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for your call from Key Largo. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you. Um I have a hard question. I don't know. It's hard for me. But. Sorry. It's okay. Take your time, Jean. Making me emotional, but um, because I'm struggling with it, and I've um, also been thinking and talking to a lot of people lately about this subject and um, getting various answers, and I just. Uh, even talked to a priest today, uh, my own priest, about it. Um, what I'm struggling with is that uh, I don't agree most of the time with our current Pope on his on the issues occurring in this society today, and. Some of the things that he says, and I have talked to other people about it, and I was wondering if, and we just, uh, we talked about this last night on, uh, in my uh, prayer group, and um, each one of them had a different idea about it, well, you but... Know- Go ahead. Um, okay. And um, what the question is is, I feel like I I know that I have been uh, very critical of our current pope, and because I do not agree, and I feel like he's in a lot of gray areas, and that I feel in my Catholicism that 
black is black and white is white, and there are no grays area. Okay, well, Gene, we thank you so much for your call today. And Gene, don't don't hang up because we're uh, we have a break here that we have to take in a minute. And we're going to go to that break, but Father Wade will start now and he'll finish um, his answer to your question after this break. So don't uh, don't hang up. Just stay on the line, okay? Okay. Yeah, it's it's a question of of ordinary magisterial teaching of the church, extraordinary magisterial teaching of the church, and simple personal opinion of he who holds the office of the chair of Peter. Okay? So anything ordinary magisterial, ordinary magisterium, anything extraordinary magisterium, yes, we, we are called to give religious assent to, okay, with intellect and will, the church teaches. Uh, and we'll come back and finish this up, Gene, when, when we come back from the break. Thank you so much. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. But it is indeed still Open Line Tuesday, talking faith, family, and fellowship with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. This is a recorded edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, a brand new program, but Father Wade is traveling today. So we recorded this in advance, and we had some callers that were still on hold from a previous program. And we're talking to Gene right now in Key Largo, Florida. And Jean is distressed a little bit by what she thinks is is a little bit of gray haze that she gets from our current Holy Father, Pope Francis. Yeah, so it's a question of, of what is ordinary magisterium, what is extraordinary magisterium, and what is simply uh, a personal opinion of he who holds the current uh, office of the chair of St. Peter, the successor of St. Peter. So, for example, the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption, uh, extraordinary teachings of the magisterium. Okay, those are extraordinary. They were solemnly proclaimed. We give religious assent to them, uh, a, a filial assent of a child to a parent. Uh, the you know and 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 they're they're revealed to us over time, uh, and they are grounded in scripture, tradition, the magisterium, but they're not explicit, so they're proclaimed extraordinarily by the church. And so I use the immaculate conception, the assumption as as two such examples. The ordinary magisterium we have, I don't know, doctrines of the trinitarian God, uh, the merciful love of the Father. Father. Uh, Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of all. Uh, these things are explicit in Scripture uh, and tradition in the Magisterium, so there's no need for extraordinary pronouncements about them. They're ordinary pronouncements, huh? Uh, the Holy Spirit and His manifold works, for example, uh, the, the seven gifts or the twelve fruits of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the fullness of sacred Scripture, that, that, that Scripture, divine revelation, is sealed. There, there will be no further revelation. And we have the canon of Scripture, namely from the Council of Carthage from 397 A.D., which gives us the 73 books. 27 of the New Testament and 46 of the Old Testament. Uh, the seven sacraments themselves and what each one of them detail. These are all, these are all examples of the ordinary magisterium. Uh, so yes, we, we give religious assent of intellect and will to the ordinary and extraordinary magisterium. But for the Pope, of any Pope, not just Pope Francis, who gives an off-the-cuff comment 
of something uh, during a, a trip back to Rome on the airplane. Uh, we're too quick to say that, that the Pope said this or the Pope said that. Well, how did he say it? Did he say it in an off-the-cuff comment? Uh, most of the time, yes, because the Pope doesn't speak ordinary magisterium or extraordinary, and surely not extraordinary magisterium, on a plane flight from from Turkey back to Rome, you know? So we got to be able to make those distinctions. Distinctions, Semper distingue, semper distingue, St. Thomas Aquinas teaches, which is simply Latin for always distinguish. So, um, you know, thank you so much for your a sincere call, Gene, but it should not uh, disrupt your peace in, in being a Catholic and in, in knowing what the ordinary and extraordinary magisterial magisterium teaches and what's necessary for salvation based on scripture tradition and what's upheld by the magisterial teachings thanks gene we appreciate the phone call um again this is a very special mailbag edition of ewtn's open line tuesday so we won't be taking your phone calls but we do have some uh callers that have called after hours and left some questions for father wade let's take a listen to one of those now i just wanted to know if it's okay to receive communion more than once a day, because sometimes I go to Mass two times, if there's a Mass in the morning, and then sometimes there's a uh, miraculous metal Mass on a Monday night. I'd like to know if it's okay to receive communion more than once a day. Great. No, nobody answers this question more thoroughly than you do. Great question. We've had it before on Open Line Tuesday. Well, thank you, Jack. I appreciate that. Uh, yes, and to quote Canon Law, we can receive Holy Communion iterum, which means again in the Latin. We can receive Holy Communion, the Most Holy Eucharist, iterum, again. Uh, it's, it's the same Latin word where we get the word reiterate or iterate. Uh, we can receive the Most Holy Eucharist or Holy Communion, iterum, again, provided the second time is at a full Mass. The first time in that 24-hour day does not need to be a full Mass. And I'm going to give the example I always give. So you're, you're visiting your, your grandmother in the nursing home at about 10 a.m., and the deacon, an ordinary minister of Holy Communion, happens to be making the rounds in that nursing home where your grandmother is, is living. And uh, he happens to, to visit your grandmother's room. She's his last visitation, the deacon's last visitation, and he has an extra Eucharist because one of the other people on his count in the same nursing home uh, didn't want to receive. And so for whatever reason, and so he has an extra host. So you're visiting your grandmother when he walks in the room and he says, hey, I, I happen to have an extra host. Would you like to receive Holy Communion with your grandmother? You can say yes, because you know that your second communion, that same 24-hour day, is going to be at a full Mass because you normally go to the 5 p.m. weekday Mass at your parish Monday through Friday. So you know your second Eucharist, your second Holy Communion reception, is going to be at a full Mass. So yes, you can receive with your grandmother in the nursing home at 10 a.m. from the deacon that morning. Now let's reverse it. Let's say you have the habit of going to weekday Mass at your parish Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. And you're visiting your grandmother in the afternoon at 4 p.m. And the same scenario happens. The deacon comes in. He says, hey, I happen to have an extra Eucharistic host. Somebody on my roster here did not receive earlier. Would you like to receive with your grandmother? You would graciously decline because you know that that would be your second Eucharist that day and that it's not at a full Mass. Your first one that day was at a full Mass at the 7.30 a.m. Mass. But your second one now with your grandmother would not be a full Mass. So... So you would graciously decline. So again, we can receive the Eucharist twice in one 24-hour day, provided the second time is at a full liturgy. Now, a full Mass. Now, why does the Church seemingly have such a silly rule? Well, it's not silly at all. It's to safeguard 
the sacrament from over-reception to the point that if we received it too much, it would become almost a flippant practice we're doing. It means nothing anymore because we do it so often. So it might seem like a silly discipline, discipline rule regarding reception of the Eucharist, that you can receive twice in one day, provided the second time is at a full Mass, but it's not really that silly. It's to safeguard the Eucharist from over-reception, thereby becoming something, something very flippant in our lives that doesn't mean that much. So thank you for a great question on the Eucharist. Uh, again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We're not taking any phone calls, but we are clearing out our hard drive space with some listener comment line calls. Let's take a listen to another one. Hi, my name is Peter. I'm calling from Marietta, California. And the question is, when the person dies and the soul leaves the body, where is the court of heaven? Where does the judgment happen? Uh, this is my question. Thank you very much. Oh, and a very interesting question, I might add. Where does the judgment take place? That in and of itself remains a mystery. We only know what is revealed to us and which is upheld by Scripture, tradition, sacred tradition, and the magisterium, the teaching office of the Church, which itself is rooted or grounded in the Apostolic College. Where the judgment takes place, literally, we don't know. But we do know that the particular judgment, that is when the particular person dies, the particular judgment happens immediately after death. That is revealed dogma. That's revealed doctrine. We know that. We also know that the person can either go to heaven immediately or delayed through a prior purification in purgatory, or the person, meaning their soul, can go immediately to hell. So entrance into hell would be by their own doing, because God sends no one to hell. It's by their own purposeful non-repentance of a mortal sin, grave matter, fullness of knowledge, and done with deliberate consent of their will. Entrance into hell happens immediately. There's no delayed option to go to hell. But entrance into heaven can happen immediately or through a delayed period through purification purgatory. Purgatory is about one thing and one thing only, the need to atone for temporal punishment for already forgiven mortal and venial sin, which at the time of earthly death is not yet atoned for. Meaning, therefore, if at the time of your earthly death, your temporal punishment due to already forgiven mortal and venial sin is atoned for at the time of your early death, you do enter heaven immediately, okay? This is why staying close so, so close to the sacraments is important throughout our life by practicing plenary and partial indulgences, uh, by carrying out the 14 works of mercy or the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, not for the works themselves, but for the, uh, for the, for the charity they help prosper uh, once we are already in a state of justification, which comes only from God, we can't merit justification on our own in that initial step. Uh, so, so this is why it's so important to stay active in the church, okay? Because when I make my morning offering in the morning, I pray for the grace to atone for any and all temporal punishment due to my already forgiven mortal and venial sin, so that at the time of my earthly death, I can merit the greatest of graces of going straight to heaven when I die. Okay, And I have my morning offering worded at the Fathers of Mercy website, which states that beautiful uh, petition at fathersofmercy.com, at the homepage of fathersofmercy.com. If, if on the search bar you type morning offering, prayer of morning offering, or just morning offering, you will discover that prayer where I word the morning offering that way, that I want to atone for all 
any and all temporal punishment now for my already forgiven mortal and venial sin while still living on earth, thereby attaining the greatest of all graces that when I do die, I can merit heaven immediately and not have any purgation in purgatory. Uh, purgatory is a very merciful doctrine. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's the ante-room, meaning the before-room, A-N-T-E, not A-N-T-I. It's the ante-room of heaven, what, what Mother Angelica affectionately called the vestibule of heaven. You know, every ch- Catholic church has a vestibule or a narthex, a gathering space. The traditional term is vestibule. So purgatory is the vestibule of heaven, right? Fine, beautiful. That said, who the heck wants to go there? I don't, I don't want to go there. You know, that, that book put out by Tan Books and Publishers called uh, Purgatory, titled Purgatory as Told by the Lives and Legends of the, of the Saints. Well, let me tell you what. Don't, don't read that book in a dark room with a lit candle, okay? <laughs> uh, you, you don't want to go to Purgatory if you can help it. Purgatory is very merciful. And Susan Tassoni jokes with me, you shouldn't tell people they don't want to go to Purgatory. I says, are you kidding me? I want to tell them not to go to Purgatory. She's known as the Purgatory Lady, affectionately, because <laughs> she speaks on Purgatory so much in the fact that it is a very, very merciful, merciful doctrine. And she's right. But that said, who wants to go there? I want to go straight to heaven when I die. So great question about where does the particular judgment take place literally. We don't know. That's a mystery. But we do know that the judgment takes place immediately upon the person's death and that those are the three options. Heaven immediately, heaven delayed through purgatory, or hell immediately. And that's with the soul only, which will not be reunited with the, with the body until the general judgment at the end of time, the last day, when the particular judgment is ratified for all to know what it is and why it is what it is. For those who are saved, having their whole life laid bare before all will be no source of embarrassment for them because their life will show precisely how they welcomed God's mercy in their life throughout their lifetime, right? But for those who are reprobated by their own doing to hell, it'll be a a great source of embarrassment having their life revealed before all. Why? Because their life will show how they rejected God's mercy. That'll be the main reason. The reason why they'll be embarrassed uh, isn't because of their sins being bared before all. That, that fact will be secondary, why they're going to be embarrassed. The main reason why they're going to be embarrassed, the reprobated that went to hell by their own doing, is because their life will show precisely how they rejected God's mercy. That's primary. The fact that their sins will be revealed to all will be secondary. So this is why number uh, 1407 of the Catechism, I believe it is, says that the beauty of confession now shows that we're open to judgment now. Because confession is a judgment tribunal. It's a tribunal of mercy that judges through the priests acting in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, how uh, we're going to be judged. So for those who partake of this beautiful tribunal of mercy now, accept mercy now, go to confession regularly now— When they die, the Catechism says, number 1407, they don't come into judgment. They they do, literally, but not a judgment of reprobation. How beautiful is that, huh? So again, number 1407 of the Catechism, a beautiful paragraph that says, how we treat confession now says a lot about how we view our particular judgment. I embrace confession now. I try to go at, at the very least every two weeks. As a Catholic priest, I'm on the front lines of battle. Okay, even venial sins, I want to confess every two weeks, even though there's other ways that venial sins are, conf- are, are forgiven. But I want to stay close to the sacrament of penance. And, and 
and knowing that I'm staying close to the sacrament of penance helps me embrace the reality of my particular judgment. Thank you so much for a great question. Once again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line, and really more more accurately described, it's a listener comment line call edition of EWTN's Open Line. Be sure to check out Women of Grace every day, Monday through Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Who's that hostess that does it, it, that show? She, she's fantastic, and and no no offense, Father Wade, but she's the best-looking host on EWTN Radio. <laughs> Uh, you can say that and get away with it as an EWTN right. employee. That's right. That's right. Uh, my lovely wife, Johnette Williams, hosts the program, but it is, uh, as she says, for everyone because real men listen and watch Women of Grace. Amen. So that's 11 a.m. Eastern Time, Women of Grace, right here on EWTN Radio. Let's take a listen to another listener comment line call. My name is Adam, and my question today is, well, actually, I should preface it with this. Um, California just passed a bill that would legalize and decriminalize possession of psychedelics such as LSD, psilocybin, possibly even DMT. My question is, as a Christian, would it be wrong to partake in these substances? Because there's a vast amount of research behind it and whatnot that could say it could improve health conditions, and that is a point that I'm looking at. Also, with cannabis, I've heard devil's lettuce many times, but it's also saved my life personally, and I wanted to know that if if I wanted to be a continued Christian, if I would need to stop using it for medical purposes, or if it's indeed a substance okay to use. Okay, great, great series of questions about this topic. I'm going to answer not about the particular substances, okay, I'm just going to answer in general what the Church's teaching would be. Uh, Only under doctor's orders could you take such substances, and I'm, I'm speaking only to cannabis right now and, and, uh, and so-called medicinal marijuana. Uh, I don't know about the other ones like the LSD. I, I have no idea. But I could say about the LSD and the others, you don't want to take any of these, including the cannabis and the so-called medicinal marijuana, without your doctor knowing that you are. And the answer would be no for purely recreational reasons. So no for recreational purposes, a possible yes for medicinal purposes, but only under doctor's orders and only in minimal quantities. Remember, you're dealing here with substances that can affect brain cells where alcohol, and I'm talking about moderate alcohol, I'm obviously not talking about alcoholism, which can affect the body as well, like cause a bad liver, liver cirrhosis, etc. But for recreational uh, alcohol, you know, two drinks here, one drink there, you're dealing with something that affects the blood for the most part, okay? Not something that affects the brain cells like these other substances. They affect the brain cells, and that's a major distinction that has to be made. Blood affectation versus blood uh, versus uh, brain cell affectation affecting either, uh, and so there's a difference there. So, yes, possibly I'm going to add a possibly there. Yes, possibly for medicinal purposes, but only in minute amounts and only only under your doctor's prescri- prescribed care. Thank you so much for a great question. And and it might be worth mentioning here that that we sure. and I'm not casting aspersions on our caller at all, but but. We have to guard ourselves diligently against creating a desired outcome in our thought process, huh? Yeah, that's that's a great point. That's a great point. That 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 this will lead me uh, to 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 better uh, better horizons. You know, I, I had a call one time, and I think it's I think it's appropriate to say this here, Jack. I had a call one time. In fact, I believe I was in studio, where um, where the caller says, "Father, I only feel close to God when I'm high on marijuana." Is that okay? 
And I said, no, that's not okay because that's not God's will for you. God's will for you is to draw close to him like you feel you are under marijuana, is to draw close to him and be intimate with him in that divine communio, that communication between God and the soul, uh, when you're not under a substance. That's God's desire for you. So you don't want to rely on substances to see better horizons in your life, either temporally or spiritually, like this caller was calling specifically about the spiritual aspect. No, it's not okay. God's plan A for you is to draw close to him with that divine communio, dare I say the seventh mansion described by St. Teresa of Avila, or any of the six mansions leading up to St. Teresa of Avila, uh, taught by Teresa of Avila, without substances, but rather through your own spiritual acumen and your strong spiritual life and you're wanting to draw close to God and the daily rosary and the divine mercy chaplet and the sacraments and acts of charity that's how we draw close to God not through artificial substances let's take a listen to another listener comment line call hello my name is Sonny from the Virgin Islands I have a question for Father Wade I picked up his book on the four last things it's got me thinking about making sure that um, my family knows my wishes on um, on how to take on how to take care of me in the event that I get ill. Someone, and if, for example, a Catholic is diagnosed with cancer, is it permissible for them to basically say that they don't want treatment and they just want to be kept comfortable? Is that something that we're allowed to do as Catholics? Thank you for your work. And, and thank you for your call. And, and when you say your family, the, reading the four last things has you thinking about your family and helping to prepare them. I don't know if you mean that in general or if you mean specifically that you're, you're the husband and father of the family. But if, if either or, I, I commend you on your concern and your love for your loved ones. And if, if a father concerned about his bride and his children, I especially commend you because as provider, protector, and defender of of women, of children, of virtue, and of the culture. It sounds like you're definitely on the right track, my brother, and so I commend you on that. Um, we are never, ever bound to take any extraordinary means of medical assistance, but we are always bound to take ordinary means. So, for example, as long as the body is able to process solid foods, the patient should take solid foods. There might come a time where the person with cancer, like my own father, uh, was not able to, at one point to take any solid foods. They moved him to, to soft foods. When he couldn't do that, they put him on intravenous foods, on a drip of, of nutrition. My father was very faithful to taking everything he could take at the proper time that he could take it because such things are considered ordinary assistance. So once he could no longer take anything at that certain juncture, whether solid, soft, or intravenous, we could take him off of it, and it wasn't considered starvation. Some of the things that are always, always considered ordinary means of palliative care would be clean, ble- clean bedclothes on the person's body, clean bedclothes on the bed itself, the sheets and so forth, a regular moistening with water of the interior of the mouth, the tongue and the lips on the outside, also a salve on the lips to keep them moist on, on their exterior, Um, And hydration is considered um, ordinary palliative care, even if it's through a drip, uh, normal hydration. We don't want to dehydrate the person to death as well. Uh, So we are always bound to take ordinary palliative care, but we are never bound to take extraordinary care. And uh, if, if a father, I want to end with this, if you are a father, and even if you're not, and, and, and you're 
a, a single man concerned about his family members, his parents, his siblings, and want to help them prepare for death, as, as you read The Four Last Things, my book, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell, I think it's, it's a good teachable moment on fatherhood. You know, good fathers affirm their children. Good fathers are physically present uh, to their wife and children. Good fathers affirm their wives. Good fathers are emotionally available to their brides and, and to the, their bride and their children. Good fathers are spiritually involved. Good fathers love and pursue the prodigal child who's, who's left the faith. Um, good fathers reach out to the fatherless. Huh? These are all good qualities of, of a father. We need to seek to be good fathers that, that God has called us to be, and we can never forget that. So, so a great call, and thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. And thank you for reading The Four Last Things. I think we can maybe take one last listener comment line call here. Yeah, hi, my name is Felix. To those people who have a a mental disorder, for example, they are serial killers, are they definitely going to hell or because it's not actually not their fault, I mean, they're sick, then they have a chance to go to heaven because it's not their fault, right? Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, It's all a matter of free will, free will of committing the crime and free will of repenting of the crime. I, I, would, I would care to graciously disagree that some serial killers uh, don't know what they're doing. I would say some know what they're doing. Um, there's also a question of control, huh? So it's all a matter of free will, the doing of the crime, and free will of wishing to repent of the crime. And this is why we pray for sinners. My goodness, one of the chief messages out of the fully approved apparitions of Our Lady of Fatima to the three shepherd children, servant of God, Lucia and Saint uh, Jacinta and Saint Francisco, uh, the latter two were siblings and they were cousins to the servant of God, Sister Lucia. How often does Our Lady tell the three shepherd children of Fatima, pray for sinners, pray and or pray for the conversion of sinners, huh? Uh, And so we pray for such individuals who have committed such crimes. But it all boils down to uh, a question of free will, not only what they had in free will when committing the crime or were they truly psychotic. Um, and I'm not a clinician to, of any sort, psychiatrist or psychi- psychologist, to be able to, to look at a case study and dis- discern that. But a question of free will and the commission of the crime and secondarily, once in prison and whatnot, uh, uh, a question of free will to uh, repent of the crime. Great question. Thank you so much. Give me your best 25-second commercial for the Fathers of Mercy. The best 25-second commercial for the Fathers of Mercy is look at fathersofmercy.com. Check out our Come and See Visitation weekend dates and contact our vocation director, Father Ken Geraci. Would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always. St. Joseph, terror of demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it live with Father Wade next week. Until we get together then, God bless. Unless I forget.